0: Well, if you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew 5. We are on the back nine of our summer series looking at the Beatitudes found at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And today we are considering verse 8 of Matthew chapter 5. While you're turning there, I want to read... Some excerpts from a newspaper story printed in the Pittsburgh Press. And this was published February eighth, nineteen 1981. Bob Williams was the reporter. Even though this is a Pittsburgh paper, it's stamped from Los Angeles. Ever since her miracle, Anna Mae pinnacle, can hardly wait to get up in the morning. When the alarm goes off, her first thought is to splash her eyes with water and put on her glasses. Then she begins a day in delighted scrutiny of everything she sees. It's all so beautiful, she said, so much bigger and brighter than I ever imagined. She waited 60 years to catch her first glimpse of the world. Blind from birth, she gained sight last October at age 62 when UCLA doctors removed congenital cataracts from her left eye. Her corrected vision in that eye is almost twenty thirty. good enough to pass a driver's test. After the operation, she said she had always been able to picture green, for example, but was astonished to discover it had so many shades. Mrs. Pinnica said she recognized her husband and others she had known well during her blindness. But people less well known often turned out to be taller, heavier, younger, or otherwise different than she had imagined them. Miss Penica said, I didn't know what I was missing until I could see. Everything is still so new, I just can't get enough of it. Could you imagine? Living your whole life totally blind and then at the age of 62, finally being able to see. You know, she described marveling over the different shades of green. Imagine her first sunset or first time driving out in the desert and looking at the Milky Way. Or just a bouquet of flowers. Or her first time seeing the Pacific Ocean. Or the Rocky Mountains. It'd be overwhelming. I I want you to hold on to that thought. Because in today's Beatitude, the Lord teaches us that there is a greater vision than those greater and more overwhelming than a formerly blind woman seeing all the beauty of the earth with new sight. A vision more wonderful than seeing for the first time the faces of friends and family. What is that greater sight? We see it spoken of in the last half of Matthew 5, 8. They shall see God. Martin Lloyd Jones makes this comment in his exposition on the Beatitudes. He says, We come now to what is undoubtedly one of the greatest utterances to be found anywhere in the whole realm of Holy Scripture. Anyone who realizes even something of these words can approach them only with a sense of awe and of complete inadequacy. They shall see God. Was the doctor... Simply being hyperbolic? I don't think so. Seeing God has for all time been the greatest desire of the people of God. I was reminded of Moses in Exodus 32, Exodus 33. Lord, I want to see your face. Seeing God. It's the ultimate purpose of religion. What our Lord is speaking of here is the greatest event possible in the totality of our existence. From the moment we come into this world born of our mother and throughout the years we have on this earth, and on into eternity, and the blissful, endless day, there is and will be no greater sight we will see, no greater moment we will experience, no greater joy we will feel than seeing God. The Apostle Paul, writing in First Corinthians 13, tells the church at Corinth, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The believer, like Anna Mae Pinnika, is given sight. But not sight to see trees and clouds and birds. We're given eyes to see the creator, the one who is infinite in being and perfection, the one who is most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. The one who is most just and terrible in his judgments. The one who has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. The one who does not derive any glory from anything he has made, but is the fountain of all being. The one to whom is due from angels, mankind, and every other creature, whatever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. That's the one the pure in heart will see. Think of that moment when Mrs. Pinnicka's bandages were removed for the first time. And the left eye adjusted to the light and began to take in the world. A world that was bigger and brighter than anything she'd imagined. Delightfully scrutinizing everything she saw, not knowing what she had missed until she could finally see. And then not being able to get enough of it. Believer, I want you to know that such a moment is promised to you, although it is a greater moment because it's not creation that will fill your vision, but rather the creator himself. And that sight, even just the first few seconds of it, will surpass every joy you have experienced and every beauty you have beheld in this life. And that is the promise to those who are pure in heart. Let's pray and then read God's word together. Heavenly Father, this is our highest desire to see you, to be with you, that you would be our God and we would be your people. So would you instruct us from your word? Your son has said, Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Would you use your word To that end, this morning, as it is read and preached, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 5, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So the place where we must begin is with the heart. And I'm just going to warn you again, I've been using a lot of... uh, uh, just research and scripture and different ideas that i would gathered for the sermon. I've been using those throughout the service. I couldn't fit everything in here. I had to squeeze something like 10 pages of notes into six pages of manuscript. There is so much here. I, so I picked one line and followed it. So just know that. <laughs> when you read through the Gospels... Especially if you keep reading through the Sermon on the Mount, you will see that the heart was a huge emphasis of the Lord's teaching. He famously said things like, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. And then he gives... A list of examples, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person and they come out of the heart. The heart was also in in view when he rebuked the Pharisees because they were concerned with external obedience, external purity rather than Inward purity. And he said things like, You wash the outside of the cup, but leave the inside full of greed and self indulgence. You are like beautiful tombs on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. You care about external actions of compliance, but you have neglected. The weightier matters of the law. You may come near to God with your mouth and honor Him with your lips, but your hearts are far from Him. The Lord Jesus cared and continues to care about the state of the heart. Well, what then is the heart? We are not talking about the main organ of your cardiovascular system that pumps blood throughout your body. The biblical conception of the heart is much deeper. Simply put, it's who you are at the core of your being. If we could peel back all of your layers and see who you really are at the center, there we would find the heart. It is the center of your being, the center of your personality, the center of your desires. The way that you talk and act and think is all a reflection of the state of your heart. Proverbs 27, 19 says, As in water, face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects man. Your heart reflects who you really are. It is where your thinking and your feeling and your doing comes from. It is the fount out of which everything else emanates. Proverbs 4.23 calls it the wellspring of life. Which is why the author says, above all else, guard your heart. That's what we're talking about. Who you are most truly. At your center, the core of your being, that is the heart. And the Lord Jesus teaches that it is only the pure in heart who will see God. So what is meant by purity of heart? Well, I may have surprised some of you last week uh, just with uh, the definition of mercy that I gave, and I might do the same this week. This might be a bit unexpected. Maybe that'll be fun. For us to understand what the Lord is talking about here. When he speaks of purity of heart, I think is linked to simplicity of heart or singleness of heart. Simplicity, uh, simplicity or singleness of heart. And I'm going to illustrate this. Think of snow for a moment. Pure snow. The type of snow you'd go out and gather in a cup in order to make snow cream. What does it look like? Is it muddy snow on a path where boots have walked? Is it snow that's been plowed into a big mound in the corner of parking lots? Is it yellow snow after you let the dog out? The snow that you would gather for snow snow cream is pure snow white, freshly fallen snow, and it is pure because it is not mixed with anything. It is pure snow, simply snow, singularly snow. You could say the same thing with gold. Pure gold is only gold. The dross has been burned away. The impurities... The bits of rock, all that has been removed. And pure gold is unmixed, undivided gold. Now apply that to the heart. A pure heart is an unmixed condition of being, specifically as it pertains to the Lord. It means that at my core, I have a singular devotion to the Lord. And this helps make sense of the greatest commandment, doesn't it? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Love Him with all that you are, unmixed, undivided, indivisible, singularly focused on Him. That's purity of heart. Sinclair Ferguson defined it in this way. He said, it is to have a heart that is with single mind directed to the Lord Jesus Christ and his Father and to the cause of the kingdom of God. A heart with a single mind directed to the Lord Jesus, his Father, and the cause of the kingdom. And he illustrates this. A picture we'll all know. There are some folks who will go to the beach and they'll take their shoes and socks off and they'll walk down to the edge and step on the wet sand and allow the water to run over their toes and maybe get up to their ankle or mid-shin. And then there are others who just run charging and just crash into the waves. Kind of awkwardly flail about, but completely go under. That's the image here. Single-minded direction on Jesus Christ and his Father and his kingdom. Sinclair Ferguson continues, To have a pure heart is to be seeking first and foremost the kingdom of God and his righteousness, with the confidence that everything else is of secondary importance. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? We will find it in the next chapter. The Lord will speak these words, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. What were the All these things that will be added. Your life, the number of your days, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. And the Lord says, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I'm convinced this is purity of heart. Uh, Wholehearted singleness of purpose directed to our God and His kingdom. And I've got some more scripture examples just to back up that point. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. I'm convinced if we had a manuscript of the Lord's sermon, this would be one of his footnotes. Psalm 24, 3-6. through 6. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false, And does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. The person who has clean hands and a pure heart who is seeking the face of God, what what is said of him, he does not lift up his soul to what is false. And he does not swear deceitfully. This means he's not worshiping and serving another God. He's serving God alone. Nothing else has taken the Lord's place. We are not giving a created object or a created being, the place that rightly belongs to the Creator. And again, another illustration that we will all understand. In 1 Corinthians 3 and Titus 1, Paul gives the qualifications for elders, and one of those is that he is the husband of one wife, meaning the elder will be a one wife, woman kind of man. He will be faithful to that woman. He will be faithful to his wife. And it's the same here. We are to be one God type of people. Not offering our soul to another. Not lifting up our soul to something that is false but in purity of heart, in purity of heart, seeing the Lord Jesus reign as supreme with majesty and without rival or question. Here's another part of this. Another way in which our hearts can be divided or mixed. And that's the Sin of hypocrisy. And I really, don't, I really don't plan this. I love in our affirmation of faith, there's this line, but hypocrites and those who do not repent, eat and drink judgment on themselves. You remember where the word hypocrite comes from? It originally meant a play or a stage actor, a person who puts on a mask And plays a part. And we're familiar with this word. We know how how it has evolved in its usage. It will describe someone who says one thing and does another. A person who will act one way in public and another way in private. And this is the point. This person is divided. They aren't whole. The words coming from their mouths don't match what's really going on inside them. Back to the snow analogy. They may look pure and clean, but underneath there is muddy, dirty snow. That's the hypocrite. And we talked about the Pharisees earlier. We see this again. They practice their righteousness before people. Not out of a single devotion and love to the Lord, not to the service of his kingdom. They do so that they will be seen and praised and thought well of by others. And Jesus uses the harshest of words when speaking to them. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Those who are pure in heart are not double-minded. They are whole. They are sincere. They are free of hypocrisy. Now back to where we began. If it's the pure in heart, who shall see God? And if this is the meaning of pure in heart that I've just given, then who among us is going to see God? Who among us has a heart that is singularly, continually focused on God and his kingdom alone? If this is really it, then we are devastated because I know my heart is mixed. I know that part of me wants to honor God and worship God and to serve him alone, but there are other parts of me that want other things. And I may say it with my mouth, but my actions prove that I am not always a one God type of man. My mind isn't solely directed to Him. I am not solely seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness, but instead, like Paul in Romans 7, I recognize that instead of unity and peace, there is a war raging within me between the spirit and the flesh. And returning to the snow analogy, far from pure white, my sin has stained me red as crimson. So what then is the answer? It's to plead the blood of Jesus. To plead the blood which was shed to make sinners clean. And to wash us white as snow, and to cry out for mercy and cast ourselves upon the grace of God and watch Him work in our lives. He will not be surprised by this. He knows your poverty of spirit. He knows that you mourn your sin. He knows the reason you're meek. He knows that you hunger and thirst for righteousness because you don't have any of your own. He knows all this already. And he will not be surprised when you confess the confusion and division of your heart. I was reminded of my three-year-old. She's getting more independent. But there are have been lots of times when she would get stuck behind uh, the baby gate and would be forced to cry out for help. Or she would climb up a stepladder and get stuck and cry out for help. Or she would lock herself in the bathroom and cry out for help. Or she would need milk because she's thirsty and she'd cry out for help. And Molly and I, because of our love for our daughter, hear her cries and respond. Are we to believe that on our own, without any assistance from God, we can really have heart perfection, heart purity? No. Like my three-year-old crying out to me, we cry out to our Heavenly Father. And like David say, create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. We cry out and ask Him to implant love and devotion to Him within our hearts. We ask that by his grace, we would seek first his kingdom and righteousness. To quote Psalm 8611, we cry out, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Or to quote the hymn, O For A Closer Walk With God, we may cry out these words. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Our Father will hear us and help us. He has promised. He said in Jeremiah 32, Verses 38 through 41. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. That I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. That they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness. With all my heart and all my soul. Believer, hear and rejoice in those words spoken of you by your God. He has promised he would do this. I'm just getting rapid fire text here at the end. Titus two, eleven through 14. This is speaking specifically of the work of Christ in us. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is why he gave himself. This is why his blood was shed, to purify for himself a people. He will give his people new, clean Hearts and we shall see him. It is the promise made by the Lord to the disciples in this beatitude, so that we too, in full assurance, can say, like Job, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Maybe you caught this, but we've been singing Of this so far. In our first hymn, we sang these words Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore, till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Or in our second hymn. I'm uh, missing Lori Davis today because I believe this is her favorite verse written in all of hymnody. And we can end with it. Weak is the effort of my heart and cold my warmest thought. But when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. But when I see thee as thou art, I will praise thee as I ought. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we remember that this vision is not only something that happens in the world to come after the moment of death. Father, we will see you here and now. We will see you in creation. We will see you in your grace and faithfulness to us, in your work in our lives, in your work in others. We will see you as we open and read your word. But Father, one day we will see fully. One day we will no longer see through a mirror dimly, but face to face. And Father, the joy that Miss Anna Mae Pinnaka felt as wonderful and as true and sincere as it was, will not compare to the joy of those who have been purified by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may this truth carry us and motivate us and give us joy through all our days and all our circumstances until we are absent from the body and present with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.